Hello, my friend. How are you today? I'm good, Liberty. Good to be back for the fourth yeah. time, I guess. Yeah, you're taking the lead now, I think. <laughs> I'm determined to keep the lead. <laughs> <laughs> so I was thinking, right, it's important to experiment in life. Let's always try new things. So I wanted to try a new format, something a bit shorter, a bit snappier. So because I'm not original, I just figured I'd copy dittering. But I don't think we can keep it to 15 minutes, right? Can we do that? <laughs> I'm not optimistic that I'll be able to only speak for 15 minutes. I don't trust myself to speak only for 15 minutes. So I'm guessing it will definitely cross 30 minutes. We'll see how it goes. Doesn't matter as long as we're having fun. That's the important thing. So the topic for today, you recently posted about big tech compensation. And that's kind of an interesting topic because I think everybody kind of knows some of the headlines, but few people dig into the actual proxies and look at the stuff which you did. So that was super interesting. So I'd love it if we could go through what you found and if you had any more new thoughts. I know you got feedback on it. So any any yeah. new things since you published would be great. Yeah, no, first of all, you mentioned big tech. And I also, like when I wrote that piece on incentive and compensation structure at big tech, some people you know, mentioned like, hey, why is Tesla not included there? Is it not taken up <laughs> for you? So first of all, well, even like even for Meta, it's like what, like 300, 350 billion dollar EV now. So like technically, they're probably not even part of the big tech anymore, right? Because the rest of them are like at least 800 billion dollar enterprise yep. value. And Apple and Microsoft are more than probably 1.5 trillion uh, enterprise value. So the reason I haven't really included Tesla is because I am yet to follow Tesla closely. So I just never really followed the company closely. So when I do, I'm pretty sure I'll, I'll also start following their compensation structure and proxies and all that. But so far, I'll just, you know, confine this conversation to Apple, Microsoft, Meta, Amazon, and Google Alphabet. Uh, because these are the companies I just, you know, have been following for a while. Well, not so much for Microsoft. I haven't really... I haven't paid as much attention to Microsoft and Apple as I did for Amazon, Google, and Meta. So yeah, Microsoft and Apple are, you know, sort of in the, in the adjacent areas, playing in similar spaces and compared to these other three companies. So I end up following bits and pieces of these companies anyway. Tesla is sufficiently different, at least so <laughs> yeah, far, yeah. right? So I haven't felt drawn into it yet. But maybe I, I will at some point in going forward. So anyway, so I, I wrote that piece and I asked, you know, like my couple of my friends, like, hey, what do you think about this proxy? Like, you know, I'm just looking at Microsoft's incentive structure. I had like a couple of questions and my friends gave me like, you know, a couple of thoughts. I kind of you know, dug into a few other companies' proxies as well. And I'm like, you know what? Let me just write a thread. There is no better way to receive unfiltered you know, feedback, other than like, you know, writing a, a thread on Twitter, like people just tell you what they, what they think. And also, you know, because I, I, you know, posted it also on my website, many of my subscribers also responded and shared their thoughts. So, you know, it would be cool to kind of you know, build on to what I have already written. So I'll discuss briefly and then kind of, you know, share some additional thoughts. And again, like, you know, I, I, when I wrote that piece, I uh, sorted it as, as like some sort of ranking of who has the yep. best incentive structure, who has the worst incentive structure. So just to level set, I'm personally not beholden to that ranking structure, right? I just basically, you know, looked at these five, six companies, incentive structure, spent like, you know, half a day. I had like two or three criteria in terms of ranking. So I kind of, you know, tried to fit these five, six companies into that methodology. But obviously there are lots more variables and there are a lot more kind of nuances to it. So I'm personally not beholden to that, you know, ranking methodology or structure. And frankly speaking, after further introspection, after, you know, discussing with people and, you know, receiving feedback, I think I personally don't even agree with my own ranking, at least on like one particular occasion. Uh, hmm. So we can, we can get into that. We can talk about that. And there are pros and cons, I think, for all of these companies' incentive structure. So it's probably better to get into that, like pros and cons, instead of like me defending, oh, no, 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 Apple has the best you know, incentive structure and Meta is the worst, or like Amazon is third or fourth. Like there's no point in doing that, right? So yeah. there are pros and cons in every, every company's incentive structure. So it's probably better to just you know, get into those details. Let's roll. Let's start from the top. Uh, you covered Apple first. What, what did you think? And I was surprised because I've been following the company for a while, kind of like more on the tech side, on the product side. I haven't followed very, very closely all the financials. I used to own Apple some years ago. I don't anymore. And so I haven't followed since then. But it was interesting to see how 
Tim Cook got something and then he decided it wasn't restrictive enough for him, for himself. Yeah. That, that was interesting. What, what do you think of Apple? Yeah. So I guess, again, another disclaimer I probably should give. I personally own Amazon, Meta and Google or Alphabet uh, shares and also some options. But those are like long date options, not like they're expiring next day or next week. So yeah, so I need to give that disclaimer first before I discuss. I don't personally own Apple or Microsoft. Uh, okay. So yeah, so when I looked into this proxies, my uh, impression is that Apple probably had the best incentive structure. It is debatable whether they have the best incentive structure right now, but they probably had the best in the last 10 years. What they did when Tim Cook became CEO uh, and after Steve Jobs So they gave him like a huge time-based restricted stock units or time-based RECU, which he would receive in two installments, like after five years and after 10 years. So those are like sufficiently long-dated RECUs, but there was no performance condition attached to it. Mm. So he would receive those shares as long as he just, you know, remains the CEO. Just sticking uh-huh. around, right? Just sticking around, right? It doesn't matter what, you know, whether Apple is like $5 a share or like $300 a share, or like, let's talk on like market cap, like whether it's a $10 million company or like a $2 trillion company, there would be no difference in terms of how many shares he would get. Obviously, the value of those shares would be massively different, right? So he has some like alignment there, but it's just time-based RSUs. In 2013, he requested the board, the compensation committee to make some changes in his incentive structure. And he basically said that, hey, after 10 years, if it's more complicated than that, let me just keep it simple. Like let's say if Apple is the bottom third of S&P 500 companies, he would receive basically zero RSUs, like nothing, mm-hmm. zero, right? And if it's like top third, he would receive 100% of RSUs that he was granted, right? And if it's like in the middle, like you'd get like 50%. So the thing is, the thing to note here is basically inserted clauses that would jeopardize his compensation. He he had no further upside. Yeah, he didn't get anything, right? He didn't say, oh, I want 200% of my RSUs if I do better. It could only get worse. Exactly. There is no way things could have been better for him compared to what, what compensation plan he already had in 2011. Like I wasn't around in the US in 2013, but I know for a fact that people were not really super bullish about Apple uh, back in those <laughs> days. And my guess is if you, you know, you're probably around at that time. So like in 2011, 2013 period, like now. It's around Apple. the time when everybody was saying that Samsung was innovating yeah. more, was going to kill them. Where they didn't have the big phones or maybe they just started getting them. I'm not sure when the iPhone 6 Plus came out, but yeah, it, it wasn't the most positive time for Apple in the market from my memory. Yeah. I mean, I know the stock was trading at like, you know, high single digit PE. So if you think, you know, just from valuation perspective, the multiples were telling you that probably, you know, the street was expecting that Apple would uh, be terminally ill by around this time, right? Obviously now things are, you know, reversed in the complete opposite direction. Now this is the best business model in the world. (laughs) There is no beer case and all that. So yeah, don't look at China too much, right? (laughs) (laughs) Right, right, right. So, so yeah, so he had no upside compared to the compensation he already had. He just inserted clauses that could only jeopardize his compensation structure. I think that was a very gutsy call by Tim Cook. And we all know what happened. Like it's not just, you know, making multi-baggers, you know, despite starting as one of the largest companies in the world at that time, it became the largest company in the world and it remains one. So, so I love that like kind of, you know, sort of gutsy move by Tim Cook. The reason I said the last 10 years was probably much better than the one they have right now is because now they don't have like a 10-year RSU grant. They gave Tim Cook a three-year grant. And again, like the structure is if Apple is from 2018 to 2020, sorry, I think 2021 to 2023, if they become like top third, they will receive like 200%. Now they have some upside, right? Yeah. Sorry, yeah. About 85th percentile uh, of the S&P 500 companies after like these three years from, yeah, I think on October 1st, 2023, if Apple is above 85th percentile of S&P 500 companies, then named executive officers or NEOs in short, and Tim Cook, of course, they will receive 200% of their target RSU grant. So now they have more upside. They do have some downside as well. If Apple is below 25th percentile, 
they, you know, Tim Cook will receive, unlike the named executive officers will receive zero percentile. So zero is a possibility. In this case, I think I understand why they are not giving him 10-year grant because he's not going to be around for 10 years. Yeah, um, it no, feels like he's looking at it as his retirement coming and he's yeah. not ready to commit for that long, right? But it's yeah. still, in this, in this world with big company CEOs, uh, non-funders not sticking around for very long, Tim Cook's tenure has been kind of like... Yeah. Pretty long, right? Yeah, like, you know, think about it. Like when people ask who has much more influence on Apple's eventual trajectory, was it Jobs or was it Tim Cook? The fact that people even ask this question is such a big, big, you know, testament to Tim Cook's success, right? What he made Apple to be. Obviously, like I said, you know, Apple was a very successful company even when he started, but to make it a complete juggernaut, and it looks like he'll probably re retire. Keeping the company is a you know behemoth. It's just a huge, huge, huge you know testament to to his management capacity and prowess. And I'm pretty sure he's going to be one of the you know executives that people will fondly remember in terms of how much he added value to the company. I don't want to turn this into an Apple podcast, but I feel like the two main things as COO under Steve Jobs is operational excellence, right? The, the supply chain and turning Apple into like a very, very profitable company because they were a great design company and everything, but Tim Cook kind of made them profitable and made them scalable. That was the first big thing he did. And then after that, it was mostly as a steward, right? That's not screwing up the DNA that Steve Jobs put into the company. And I feel a lot of other executives would have had too much ego when would have tried to put their stamp on Apple and change it and go in a different direction. Then they likely would have screwed it up, right? While yeah. Tim Cook was kind of a steward of the culture and the, the how Apple was under Steve Jobs. And, and I think I've heard from people who worked at the company that one of the most impressive things about Tim Cook is how much he gets like the culture and tries to preserve it, right? So he knows he's not the, the best designer, the best technologist, the best this and that, but he's been a good steward of the company. So anyway, that, that's a tangent. Yeah, just a particular point. I think one point I do want to add is that you know, it, it's very hard to see the future. So who knows how I just said, you know, probably a couple of minutes ago that people will finally remember him. And then I just remember about Jack Welch and GE and <laughs> all, all, all that stuff. So, I don't know, like maybe it's possible like 10 years on the line, people will say, hey, you know, Tim Cook made Apple so reliant on China. And like, yeah. you know, that's really, that's really what made things unravel uh, at Apple. So who knows, like, you know, the future is just incredibly unpredictable. So we don't know how the future will think of Tim Cook, but so far so good. Uh, and yeah, let's not make that's it the Apple's podcast. So I'll just that's mention- an excellent point though. Excellent point. That's, it's so yeah. true that in real time, it's very hard to judge how well yeah. someone is doing without some distance. So great point. Just one more point. Uh, I, I do have some criticism that I, uh, and after kind of you know, digging more, I was trying to compare even more in, in more finer details. And I thought I do have some criticism for Apple's incentive structure. So right now, Tip Cook gets $3 million base salary, just like his base compensation annually. And the rest of the uh, named executive officers or NEOs, they get like roughly a million dollar base salary. The thing that I don't like, and it will be clear why I don't like it, as I kind of you know, go through other companies uh, in incentive structure, Apple does pay $10 million cash bonus to Tim Cook and 3 to $4 million to other like named executive officers. And obviously, they also have that you know, three-year performance based in the stock rewards, which obviously depends on the value of the stock. What's the conditions on the cash bonus? What does he need to do to get the bonus? I have to double check. I think they do have some like annual performance in the metrics that they okay. have to But it's meet. very short term, right? Yeah, very short term. But anyways, like, you know, and again, like, let's not dwell too much. As I kind of go down the list, it will be clear more why I'm not a big fan of this 10 million cash bonus each year. Hmm. So let's go to Google or Alphabet, right? So Sundar Pichai is the current CEO of Alphabet. He becomes CEO of Google in, I think, 2015, and then he became CEO of Alphabet, uh, the whole kind of, you know, uh, company in 2019. So he's been around for, you know, roughly three, four years as a, like, CEO of the whole company. He receives $2 million cash base annually. The other named executive officers get $650,000 base cash every year. So Google does not pay any annual cash or stock bonus. So zero. It's just base cash that they receive every year. And they do have stock awards that gets paid on a three-year basis. What I like about that is 
they have a relative TSR component. TSR is a total shareholder return. Apple also has that. Like I said, you know, if they're up 85th percentile or above, they get paid 200% of target RSUs. Google has similar structure. So for Google, they don't have S&P 500 as benchmark like Apple. They have S&P 100 as benchmark. Hmm. And okay. yeah, and if Google is above 75th percentile, they get 200% of the target RSUs. If they're at 25th percentile, they get 50% of the target RSUs. And it's like a normal interpolation of, you know, let's say if they're somewhere between 0 to 25th, it's just a you know, linear math that you have to right. solve. You find the point in out. between. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One thing I really loved about Apple's incentive structure that zero is a possible outcome. Like as a shareholder, I love the fact that like zero is a very possible outcome for uh, for Apple, let's say. If they are below 20, I think what they mentioned, I think 25th or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, so. If they are below 25th percentile, they get zero, right? It's harder for Google. Like obviously if they are the worst company in the S&P 100, theoretically they can be in a zero but it's unlikely. <laughs> yeah, it would be quite uh, interesting to see what would cause that. Yeah, so I would personally prefer it to like, you know, if they're like below 25th percentile, let's make it zero, right? Uh, instead of like, you know, this linear interpolation. Anyways, it's not you know, super bad. Like they're still obviously, uh, if it's close to zero percentile, or it doesn't have to be zero, like even if it's like five or 10, like, you know, they're obviously, will well, receive a lot less than if it's like, you know, top, you know, 75th percentile or 80th percentile. The one thing I, I would say, uh, I was surprised a bit why Sundar Pichai was not granted 10-year RSUs. Hmm. And on that point, I should just mention probably, I'm slightly disappointed that all these companies grant RSUs and not options. Like in Apple's incentive structure, you can get, you know, $0. But options is just much more efficient way to make sure uh, that zeros are potential outcomes, like, you know, very real outcomes, right? So RSUs are like, yeah, if it's like, you know, if you get like a million shares and your stock is down like 50% over like five-year period, you're still getting a, like, you know, pretty good amount. It's almost all upside, right? This is only the magnitude of the upside. You don't have much yep. downside there. It's not like, I don't, I don't want to be the Constellation fanboy here, but when yeah. Constellation executives have to buy in the open market some shares with part of their compensation they're really shareholders like anyone else right they bought it with real money while a lot of these executives it's kind of like well you're just getting all these shares for free and okay they're worth a bit less now but it's going to probably rebound or something it's like i don't know it, it feels very generous right even all the tsr stuff uh, with no roic with no like organic growth with no no other kinds of metrics it feels a bit generous to me yeah i mean i'll probably push back a little on the constellation argument, because I think it's not significantly different. You can say philosophically, maybe there are there is some difference, but I think pragmatically, there may not be much of a difference between constellations policy and let's say some of these big tech companies policy. And let me explain why that might be the case. Like for example, you have to, for that, you have to first start the discussion. What is the market value for, let's assume the Pichai skill set, right? Mm. So uh, if it's like $100 million, let's say, I'm just you know, throwing numbers here. Uh, if it's $100 million, it almost doesn't matter whether you give him those RSUs or you just give him like cash and then ask Sundar Pichai to go and buy stocks from the market. It's essentially the same thing, but maybe philosophically, I can see yeah, that. Maybe it feels different or maybe it's about yeah. the dilution for sure. But I get what you mean. And I get that these companies are so large that if Tim Cook makes a decision that changes the trajectory by 100 billion free cash flow over five years, right? Whatever you pay him is going to be a tiny little drop in the bucket compared to that. Yeah, uh, even like but, I, I would probably push back on the dilution argument as well. Like it doesn't matter. It's $100 million. For, you know, either you are deducting it from your P&L directly yeah, that's uh, oh, sorry. Point. You, you know, if you're paying in cash, obviously uh, your PNL drops, your cash flow drops, right? But if you pay in like stock, yes, your PNL still drops, but your you know free cash flow uh, doesn't drop as much, right? Because you are not really paying them in cash; you're paying them in equity or stock. Again, like it's the same thing. We're doing the exact same yeah. thing in just different ways and manners. But you know, there is not much practically. There is not much of a difference. But philosophically, maybe people are 
you know, so we hold into, oh, free cash flow is in everything. So, and if companies are incentivized to kind of prop up their free cash flow, then yes, there are incentives to pay in stock instead of like cash. Mm-hmm. Uh, but those are finer details. And, yeah, yeah, and it depends yeah. where the stock is trading, right? If you issue a bunch of shares at a very low multiple, maybe a bit different and very high. And this, but I, yeah. I, I totally get what you mean, right? People split air with that stuff a little too much. To go back to, go back to my slight surprise and perhaps disappointment, Sundar Pichai, when he became CEO three, four years ago, uh, he's right now for fifty years old, right? He's pretty young, fifty. So when he became CEO of Alphabet, he was like what forty-seven, maybe. Uh, and Andy Jesse right now is 55 years old. Uh, Satya Nadella is 55 years old. Andy Jesse, and I will, I'll explain later, he got like 10-year RSU grant. I think at 47, I could totally see why it would make more sense to give Sundar Pichai a 10-year grant instead of like three-year grant, right? And why does it matter? Because 10-year is longer term. Like, you know, we want him to think long term, make sure that, you know, Google's business is in good hands and good shape. If he you know, starts caring too much about relative TSR in a three-year period, there may be some things that he, he may do differently, right? Which may not be good for Google in the long term. To counter-argument that like, you know, Google still has their founders, or Alphabet still has their founders in board. So uh, maybe they, they understand these things. They can probably count, you know, act as, you know, they can counteract uh, if kind of in a compensation structure incentives act as a deterrence for Sundar, Sundar Pichai to go on about certain things swiftly. Like, you know, we are talking about chat GPT and open AI and how that may affect, you know, Google's search business. It's possible, like one could say like, hey, Sundar cares about his, you know, three-year t- relative TSR. And if he just ramps up cost and ends up like affecting search business's margin, that will hurt the stock and he doesn't want that, right? And yeah. I'm guessing Larry and Sergey are smart enough to understand that it's much more important to protect the business in the long term and not care a lot about like the relative TSR in a random three-year period, right? So it would be a lot better, you know, we just, we wouldn't even get into this sort of discussion if this, if this just gave him, gave him like 10-year grant, right? And not this in a relative TSR. As a minority shareholder, I love relative TSR. One of the concerns, I think, if you are investing in some of these big tech companies, like these companies are so large and this, you know, the founders or the top executives are so wealthy, it may just not matter to them, right? So like if Amazon remains where it is today, if it remains one trillion dollar market company, Jeff Bezos will still probably be one of the, you know, wealthiest people in the world. Amazon would, will still be one of the uh, largest company in the world, right? Minority shareholders will probably not be happy uh, with just $1 trillion in enterprise value or market cap 10 years from the, down the line. But relative TSR does take into the account, like relative TSR makes sure that executives and like top management does care about these things, like they have to kind of be better. So as a minority shareholder, I do like relative TSR. We can talk about whether three years is appropriate, probably not, maybe five, 10 years, probably more appropriate. But even on a 10 year period basis, I would rather have that like in a relative TSR thing embedded and in, instead of like in a being just complete open-ended. And like I said, I would prefer it to be options and like RSUs, but almost it feels like almost nobody gives options these days. I mean, companies do, but not the norm anymore, uh, yeah, you yeah. know, in, in, in the tech world. So one other general comment that I would include here is, I know when I wrote that thread, some people mentioned, oh, it's so easy, like, you know, it's not really impressive to be like in the top 85 percentile or 75 percentile for these companies. They can just do that. And I'm like, seriously, it's so easy. Why don't we go ahead and pick stocks that will be in the top 15 percentile five years down the line? Like these CEOs have, you know, one stock portfolio, right? They picked one stock. And they have to make sure to get paid, basically, like at least for Google and uh, Apple, that they have to be at least 75% or 85th percentile of this in 500 or 100 companies universe, right? There are a lot of portfolio managers in the, out, in the, in the, out there in the world. They can pick any stocks they want, right? They can go long, they can go short. And we all know how hard it is to beat the market, to beat the index, right? And to give you a job, to give you a task that, hey, your job is to be in the top 85 percentile or 75th percentile of S&P 100 or S&P 500 companies, that is, I, that is pretty hard. That's not easy at all. 
And these companies are so large that they are, they're yeah. actually a large part of the index that they're trying to beat, right? Especially the yeah. S&P 100, right? Well, how, how much of, of that is Google? How much of that is Apple, right? Yeah, exactly. So basically, these companies will have to probably beat each other, right? And that's what's probably going, going on uh, you know, in the recent, uh, recent years. If you don't have any, any, any comment, I can just go, go to Microsoft. Yeah, let's, let's do Microsoft. For Microsoft's case, uh, Satya Nadella receives 2.5 million cash. Uh, as base salary, uh, other named executive officers receive like roughly a million. Even for Microsoft, like Apple, Satya uh, receives $10 million cash a bonus. I mean, they mentioned it as like non-equity incentive plan, which I'm guessing means cash, right? But who knows what's included there? They, may, they mentioned non-equity incentive plan includes, you know, cash incentive. Plan. So maybe there are some other stuff in there as well. So it's not just $10 million cash, could be some other stuff there as well. So 10 million for Satya annually, maybe cash bonus, three to four million for other na named executive officers. Microsoft also have this three for, for their long-term stock awards. They look at three-year performance on a TSR basis, relative TSR. Again, that's true for obviously Google and Apple as well. They talk about relative TSR. But for Microsoft, it's just a modifier. And they look at like annually, there are some operating metrics to determine whether in these executives have met those criteria to receive those long-term stock awards. And it's very interesting what sort of metrics they look at. And I'll mention what I like about these metrics, what I don't like about these metrics. If you look at the long-term equity, so there are two, they have annual cash incentive plan, which look into basically 70% of their annual cash incentive depends on financial metrics. So revenue is 35%, operating income is 35%. And 30% of their annual cash incentive depends on operational metrics, product and strategy, 10%, customers and stakeholders, 10%, culture, diversity, and sustainability, 10%. So that's like annual cash incentives that I mentioned, about $10 million, $10 million for Satya and $3, 4000000 million for named executive officers. For long-term equity, right now, their 100% is basically based on these following metrics. Microsoft cloud revenue, 30%. Microsoft Cloud subscribers growth, 20%. Teams monthly active usage growth, 20%. Mm -hmm. Xbox Game Pass subscribers growth, 10%. Windows OEM revenue growth, 10%. LinkedIn sessions, 10%. <laughs> that's a strange one. Yeah, that's a strange one, but let me first talk about what I don't like, and then I'll mention what I do like about this metric. So what I don't like is it's all... Based on revenue, subscribers growth, and not much focus on like operating income or profitability or maybe ROIC, anything like that. So the problem is, like I said, I don't follow Microsoft religiously. So take my comments with a grain of salt. Like the, all these kind of cloud deals they're doing with OpenAI, with LSE recently. If you look at their incentive structure, it might kind of make sense why they would be inclined to get more revenue because their incentive is structured like that. But are those really good deals? Are those really good deals for shareholders, for our profitability or capital allocation perspective? We don't know. They haven't really disclosed much on like what exactly the deal entails with OpenAI. There are some rumors and speculations, but they haven't really disclosed from their own. So yeah, so even if those deals are kind of disaster, down the line, I don't see how, you know, the incentive structure demotivate them to pursue such hello destructive deals. Uh, like, you know, even the Activision Blizzard uh, you know, acquisition, I don't know, like, you know, uh, maybe it's a good acquisition. Like, you know, he's a good CEO. I'm not saying he's a bad CEO. It's kind of a consensus that he's a great CEO. And I haven't done any kind of, you know, deep work to have any sort of non-consensus view here. It's just something that stood out to me when I looked at, like, this compensation structure. So let me just, you know, probably flip and say what I do like about this. When I looked at like several proxies, it's not just big tech, like when I looked at like, you know, other co tech companies or like even non-tech companies proxies, one thing that I notice again and again and again is I feel like after looking at the, sometimes they mention, you know, later, what was the target and what was the like threshold, what was like the 200% target, what was the 100% target, what was the 50% target. You get to see, obviously they don't mention it, on a prospective basis, they only mention it on a retrospective basis. 
So you can see what was it before uh, the actual thing you have. And very often I feel like, oh, these were easy targets. Hmm. It wasn't challenging, right? If I look at what was uh, like the expectations for some of these companies, analyst expectations were actually, if they could beat the analyst expectations, they would get like 200% RSU target. And I was like, okay, that's like playing on the easy mode, right? Uh, that these boards are not really pushing these companies harder to get those 200, 200% RSU target. That should be something that you have done something, you know, incredible for the company and not something, you know, you would do it anyway, or you would, you know, those are kind of easier to meet, you know, targets. For Microsoft, I would say those, you know, when I looked at, like, they disclosed their targets, and I thought th- those targets were challenging, and they didn't meet all those targets, which is a great indication for me. I like the fact when yeah. management doesn't meet those targets, it, that shows to me that those were challenging targets. It's not like, oh, all 200%, like, okay, great. You all did great, right? So, <laughs> so that's really a suspect to me when I see something like that. But for Microsoft, if you look at, like, they do disclose earlier, like, annual targets and what they actually ended up achieving, there is wide variability, uh, which is a good sign, which means the, the board does a good job in setting those targets. Looking at this, I think I just, I found Nadella's secret plan, right? Check this out. Hmm. He's going to get chat GPT to open up a bunch of LinkedIn sessions and just flood LinkedIn with, <laughs> with content. And right. that's, how, that's how he gets there, man. That's, that's the, that must be the secret plan. Yeah, yeah, it must be it. No, but kidding aside, I totally agree how so many of these targets are like, you know, I, I don't remember if it was Buffett or maybe Michael Mobusen or someone was talking about how, like, if you're CEO for 10 years, just redeploying the company's earnings, right? That's a, a tailwind to, like, over 10 years, you may have, like, doubled the capital base of the company or something. Like, you're going to get some growth out of there, right? So mm-hmm. if the targets are, sometimes it almost feels like the target assumed that the status quo is no growth at all. And, like, any growth, wow, like, we're going to compensate you for that, right? But the status quo is a, a certain tailwind, right? And most companies, they just kind of reinvest part of their earnings at some IRC and they, they grow from there. It may be unprofitable growth it may be terrible in all kinds of ways but you can probably still get some growth just from the status quo yeah 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 for sure uh, and just one final sort of criticism for microsoft is again like a, it's kind of strange to see this one year target even in the like long term equity incentive plan which is a strange thing to say mm-hmm. when you give your executives like one year targets and you renew these targets every year so yeah like i would probably prefer it to be more like longer term like maybe five, 10 years. And again, even even Satya is not that old. He's 55 years old today. And he's been CEO for a while. So there, were, there was plenty of time to kind of grant him more longer dated options or RSUs to kind of, you know, give him more freedom. I mean, it worked out great, obviously. Microsoft has been in a kind of pole position uh, on yep. multiple secular tailwind, but maybe part some of those, that is also luck, right? And if they find themselves in a situation when there are some headwinds that may constrain them in certain directions, you know, especially given the incentive structure. But obviously, if you have like more five, 10 year period you know, incentive structure, it just gives them more freedom to pursue certain directions, even if that may depress earnings or whatever, like for, for a year or two. Yeah. Okay, so next Amazon, right? So this is the one I got like a lot of feedback. And, <laughs> I can't imagine. Uh, yeah, so a uh, lot of Amazon shareholders came back to me like saying, no, you were wrong. You know, Amazon's incentive structure is pretty good. Some said it's probably the best. I'm not sure about the best, but I think if I have to redo it after, again, some more introspections, I do think I would probably make it third instead of four. Hmm, okay. Uh, I'll explain. And again, like uh, I'll tell you what made me kind of choose it for. Again, I'm not really religious about this ranking. I'm just explaining my thought process. So first of all, unlike all these other companies, Amazon pays only $175,000 base cash to their CEO. It used to be $80,000 for Jeff Bezos. <laughs> That's Prefer- on brand. That's pretty <laughs> on brand for Amazon. Right? Right. They still have the door desks and... Yeah, All the iconic and stuff. Even more, they pay no annual cash or stock bonus. Nothing, zero. Hmm. So no annual cash or stock bonus. Only one hundred seventy-five thousand dollar to the CEO, and also for other like named executive offices. It's not just you know they're being 
stingy with CEO and they are also kind of stingy with other named executive officers. They also receive like $160,000 to $175,000 as base cash salary. And again, no annual cash or stock bonus, right? So what did they get? Andy Jassy received significant 10-year RSU grant when he became CEO. When the stock was, I think, I, I think the RSUs were issued at, after like split and all that, $166.7 per share. So it's like down almost, what, 40% since then. So, but there is no relative TSR, right? There is no relative total shareholder return mm-hmm. embedded. So it's just 10-year grant. But the good thing is, it's all backloaded, right? There are some shares you will receive in the next few, in a few years, but chunk of the RSUs that uh, was granted will actually will be available to him after like year five. So five to, I think year, uh, between year five and nine is like majority of his RSUs. So he can afford to take like a longer term view. He doesn't have to necessarily care about you know, the values of the market on a year to year basis. He doesn't have any performance metric to meet like annual performance metric or like the stock price or relative TS or nothing, right? But he will just you know keep receiving those shares on a smaller increment in year one to five and in a larger increment in year like, you know, five to nine. I think he has a very small amount in year 10. So I think the argument from, let's say, a lot of Amazon shareholders and Amazon is uh, is my, you know, top holding in my own portfolio. So I definitely heard them when they mentioned like, look, this company doesn't pay any base cash salary to these extremely highly sought after executives. They pay no bonuses, like nothing. This company pays nothing to them on a year-on-year basis. And yes, they do pay. You know, it's not generous compared to, let's say, these other companies I mentioned. Hey, Satya Nadella gets like almost $10 million every year, right? Even if I exclude all these other bays or stock awards and things like that. So by those standards, it's not overly generous, but obviously, you know, it's Amazon. So I'd say it's one of the biggest companies in the world. So it's not going to be, you know, nothing. So it's fairly generous, but it's not fairly generous on a relative basis. On an absolute basis, yes, it's a generous compensation for Andy Jassy. My initial criticism was that if, like, you know, he received, like, something like 1.2 million shares, 10 years on the line, if Amazon is trading at $100 per a share, he would still receive, like, $122 million. Uh, the total RSUs that he was granted in 2021, that itself would be worth $122 million if he, if he sells nothing in, in the interim period. And my criticism was, like, that's probably too much for a CEO who didn't do a good job over a 10-year period, Right. When I was thinking of ranking, the thing that I probably valued most is, is zero a possible outcome, right? right. How likely is zero? Obviously, everything can be zero, right? These companies just can go out of business and then obviously the RSUs will be worth zero. But how likely is it? Like for apples, the probability is high, right? I'm com- again, in, in comparison, for Amazon, obviously zero is a very unlikely event. Even if like, you know, he, he does a very average job, right? You would end up making like a, you know, significant amount of money. So that's why I've, you know, ducked them a few marks, if you will. But I, I can see the argument, like, you know, this company is fairly stringent on compensation and salaries. They do pay RSU. And I think almost every Amazon shareholder I spoke with, he sort of agreed that a performance hurdle would be better to include in addition with this incentive structure. Like in general, we, we kind of agree 10-year ground is good. It allows these CEOs to become more long-term oriented, not necessarily to, you know, cater to the tourist shareholders, right? So they cater to the long-term business owners. So that's good. We, I think we kind of uh, can agree on that point, but it would be so much better as a, from a minority shareholders perspective, we also had the stock options, right? Yep. Uh, where zero is more likely outcome instead of these RSUs. And again, like some sort of performance hurdle. I'm not saying it has to be some crazy performance hurdle. Like, oh, Amazon has to be top 85th percentile for Andy Jassy to have like, you know, 10% uh, RSUs or 10% option. No, I'm saying like, yeah, like if it's below 25th percentile of S&P 500 companies, Andy Jassy should probably, you know, get, you know, some paltry salary, right? It's not $150 million, right? So... That's the argument I was making, but I, I mean, again, like the market, we cannot think anything in isolation, right? So the market value for Andy Jassy's skill set probably higher than what Amazon is paying. Yeah. Right. So in that context, 
I think Amazon is not being overly generous here. So, so yeah, so you know, it's kind of a relative game. Like if you obviously, if, uh, you know, it's not, if you, if you are willing to, you know, go to other companies, maybe you would receive a more generous uh, offer. Even like, you know, it doesn't have to be an Amazon, maybe even like some, maybe Salesforce, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> Just Microsoft would probably pay him pretty well to run Azure or something like that, right? I don't think he's going to go to Azure. No, no, he wouldn't. He wouldn't. But if he was like, uh, screw Amazon, I'm done with this company. I, yeah. like, I'm putting my resume out, right? <laughs> I, I bet he would get some good offers. Okay, let's go to the final one. Meta, yep. right? So and it's my... the final one. That's, that's, <laughs> that's interesting, right? Yeah. A founder-led company. Yeah. Finally, a founder-led company. Yes. So Meta, so my, like, my impression was this, they have like the, Worst incentive structure among all these companies, but obviously it's all relative. So, but I'll explain. First of all, Mark Zuckerberg, who's the CEO, he receives like $1 base salary. Uh, obviously, he owns like 14, 13, 14% of the whole company. And so it's kind of almost pointless to talk about how much money he receives from the company. Then again, like for his security, personal security, Meta has to spend like $25 million. Right. Uh, so, you know, it's almost again similar. I wonder how that compares to the other big tech CEOs, right? Is he the one with the biggest security detail? Yeah. So I think I'm speaking from memory. It could be 1.66 or 16 million for Jeff Bezos. You know what? I think it's open on one of my tabs. So let me see. 1.6 million. Yeah. For Jeff Bezos. Yeah. So for Zuckerberg, uh, Meta definitely spends way more. Which I'm fine with. Like, I understand, you know, he's probably not the most well-liked CEOs in the world or in the US. So it's okay. Like, you know, $25 million is not really uh, yeah. a huge deal. going to put them in the, yeah. the poor house. Exactly. Anyway, so the other named executive officers at Meta, they get $1 million base salary and $1 million cash bonus every year. By the way, Sheryl Sandberg, Meta spends actually $10 million for Sheryl Sandberg's, uh, Sandberg's, you know, personal security as well. So it's not just Zuckerberg, but also hmm. for Sheryl Sandberg as well. Yeah, so the things that I don't like about Meta's incentive structure, and I'll give some counter-arguments later, uh, why their incentive structure is the way it is. So first of all, it's all time-based RSUs, right? There is no options or anything like that. It's all time-based RSUs, and it's, these are not even like five years or 10 years. They're like four-year RSU. So every year, as long as you are in your role, as long as you are one of the named executive officers, obviously, again, Zuckerberg doesn't receive any, you know, options, any salaries, any bonuses, nothing, right? He just receives those personal security expenses uh, from Meta. But other named executive officers, they receive, you know, $1 million base, base salary, $1 million cash bonus, and they receive like four-year time-based RSU. So as long as they are, and these are not even backloaded, Right, so these are just you know equally vested on a quarterly basis over a four-year period. Wow, uh, there is no performance metric. Like it doesn't matter whether Meta is a zero or like a two trillion dollar company. Obviously, their the value of these RSUs will matter a lot. But again, to my earlier point, because these are sizable grants, as long as they are like not at zeros, like you know, as long as Meta is not a zero, they come out fairly well. The management is like the risk reward is very, very, very favorable to the management in this in incentive structure. There's no relative TSR. Like I said, no performance metric. It doesn't matter whether their earnings is like 50% down or 50% up. They will still receive those RSUs. There is no target RSUs. There is no 100, 200% thing, anything like that. That's why I feel like, okay, this is like not a great incentive structure from a minority shareholder's perspective. Uh, the counter argument is this is a founder led company, right? And founder has a very strong vision that he wants to execute no matter what. He doesn't want to be beholden to anyone, right? Uh, <laughs> so, uh, so uh, and it's fair to say history suggests this particular founder has very non consensus ideas uh, from time mm -hmm. to time. And in most cases, or it doesn't have to be most, who knows how many non-consensus decisions he chose to take, but at least some of the decisions that mattered, he proved to be right, right? But it took a long time. And if he designed incentive structure in a way that makes it difficult to kind of change direction, 
I think one of the things I do want to mention here of this, what, five companies, I think it's fair. It's, it's consensus that Meta's business is the most vulnerable one, right? And things do change rapidly. Yeah. Uh, and like Amazon, Google, like no matter what people are saying about ChatGPT, like this is a stable business. You know, Microsoft, uh, Apple, the world can be a strange place. So who knows what's going to happen? But at least the consensus seems to be like those businesses are stable. It's kind of oil oiled machines that they have. It's harder to disrupt. But for Meta, I think the founder himself sort of agrees with the bears, right? It's like, oh, yeah, we can be disrupted any day, right? Yeah, we, we need so, a platform. We need a platform ASAP. <laughs> exactly, right? He just wants that flexibility to be able to do that, right? Right. So the incentives make it so that he's not fighting his executives incentives right yeah they, they can go along with him without feeling like okay but if i do that like uh, earnings are going to be down for a while and i'm going to get less bonus so they, they would do it kind of like reluctantly right well with this they have more flexibility to go in whatever direction he wants them to go which is maybe the point one thing i do not like about their incentive structure is like the i feel like when i even looked at the like annual cash compensation plan like an annual metrics and stuff like when i read their proxies it all feels very qualitative mm. which i hate because every time i read proxies and like you know look at these sort of metrics every time it's based on some qualitative factor the executives do great <laughs> they, they always get really there. Well, right they're all great leaders they you know they are all creating all sorts of you know cultural dimensions in their own companies <laughs> right so they do great Right. They're all above uh, average. Exactly. Right. It's only the quantitative metrics where some executives seem to fall short. Right. On qualitative factors, they're all great. So, and I feel like, you know, when I read uh, Meta's proxy, it definitely seemed like there are a lot of qualitative factors. And again, like, just to go back to the earlier point, maybe it's all just, you know, it's all based on Zuckerberg's whims and wishes. They give you things that you did a good job, right, uh, in the long-term trajectory that he once the company to go, then you, yeah, you probably get 100%, 200%, whatever, you know, he thinks is appropriate. I mean, Meta is a public company, so I think some sort of, like, I understand, like, you know, it's, these are not completely crazy arguments, right? It's not like, you know, delusional arguments. These are fairish yeah. arguments, but then probably it's better if it's not all very qualitative. You know, it's probably better if there are some quantitative metrics, at least for some named executive officers, like, at some point, they should understand, like, hey, this is our business on Facebook. This is our business on Instagram. Like, they can do some, you know, crazy stuff with VR and the like AR. But at some point, they need to understand, like, okay, we need to make at least some part of our business as a kind of high cash generating business. And it's time. It's been like almost 20 years now, right? So it's time to have some quantitative metric for at least some part of our business and not just kind of this open-ended quantitative questions for our named executive officers. Right. And you mentioned also a, a Peter Thiel angle to this. <laughs> yeah, he used to be the chair of the Composition Committee. Even Mark Anderson was part of the Composition Committee. I don't think they had much of a say, to be honest with you. Hmm. Uh, I, I think, you know, when they are, if Zuckerberg wanted something, to, I, it is Zuckerberg's company. I mean, they, they were the initial backers. I, I don't think they have much of a say at this point. I mean, as Peter Thiel is not even in the board anymore, right? I can be mistaken, but I think Mark Anderson also left. Uh, so right now, the chair of the conversation committee is PayPal's, I think, Peggy Alford or something like I, I forgot her name. I don't want to mispronounce it. Yeah, we all know. I think I, I kind of discussed in other uh, podcasts with you how much I also don't like PayPal's, you know, incentive structure. So yeah, so I think it's, it's not necessarily her fault or anyone, or Peter Thiel's fault. You know, if Zuckerberg wanted something different, I'm pretty sure he would get it. Yeah, it feels like the kind of system that when things are going well and the stock is riding high, everybody loves it because it's a founder with a vision and like nobody can stop them, right? And founders yeah. rule. And when the stock is down and the market is down and the economy is going to the crapper and digital ads are suffering, well, now it's like someone's got to stop this founder, right? He's crazy. He's not, oh, no, not I, by anything. Yeah, to make it clear, I would certainly not want Zuckerberg to leave Meta. Like, you know, I have no... These are, like, at least in my mind... Uh, and maybe it's just shareholder speaking. I don't think uh, the counter argument that I presented, I don't fully buy into those arguments, but these are not crazy arguments. Like these are not delusional arguments, right? Right. I can see the case, but I just want probably a 
better balance instead of completely open-ended. I just want some sort of balance. It feels like even if you wanted to achieve what we think he's wanting to achieve, there would be a better way to do it, right? So it's not necessarily Maybe. about the objective. It's about like yeah. the way to do it could have been more, as you say, more balanced or more like uh, make more of a distinction between certain parts of the business, right? Maybe this could finally be the year of shopping on Instagram and all that, right? All the stuff that we've been talking I, about for, for a long time. Yeah, I mean, another thing is like, this is something I kind of mentioned before. I feel like, Zuckerberg is probably one of the most bearish person on on some of the platform he owns, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I personally think Facebook will be around for a long time, even if like TikTok and all that, like, you know, if they keep dominating the time spent share and all that, I think, you know, the value Facebook provides is probably much stronger than even, you know, Zuckerberg likes to think. And that's probably part of being a founder. Like you are always very fastidious. You're always, you're fearing your eventual demise. It's right? the Andy Grove thing, right? Only the paranoid survive. Exactly. If you, yeah. if, you start, if you think you've won, if you think it's all done, it's all you can coast, you can rest on your laurels or insert whatever expression here. Usually yeah. when you get to that point, it, it stops working. In the long run, I think paranoia is good, right? I think it does help you survive. And it's a tough business. Like one of my kind of, you know, core points about social media in general, it's an extremely difficult business to make it durable right mm. and if anyone can make it durable it's a founder it's not going to be a hired executive so that is one of my kind of core thesis points that i hold for this space in general right so i do think even like and again i'm not expecting any of my executives any of my like the companies i own that will make consistently great decisions right there will be some flaws but The question is uh, whether they can come back from their own learnings and the mistakes. But yeah, I think the paranoia is good, uh, but obviously there are room for improvement for you know the incentive structure that they have. Yeah, and it's always the question of like, are the troubles because of the person or would they be there anyway and someone else would do even worse, right? People don't think very far, right? It's easy to blame like, oh, Facebook has a bunch of trouble, so it's Zuckerberg's fault, right? It's like, well, the buck stops with him because he's the CEO, but put some random Harvard MBA in there, and I'm not really sure they could face all those yeah. pressures, right? When you have a very public company, right? Everybody has an opinion about Facebook because everybody's spending all their time scrolling through it. It's not like some B2B business. Yeah, if they hire like a outside executive, I'm fairly confident the next year's earnings will be higher, yeah, right? For sure. They would optimize a bunch of stuff. Next, you know, they will be around after like in, in, in 2035. Like, I'm not confident that they will be around. Like, they will be probably eventually, you know, just another uh, social media company. Yeah, it would be pretty easy to pull some levers and cut all of the, you know, yeah. VR stuff and most of the, the blue sky R&D stuff. And all of a sudden, you'd get a bunch of monster quarters. And yeah, it would probably last for a while. But I don't know. Who knows what's around the corner and if this VR stuff is going to turn out to be the next big platform or we'll, we'll see. But it's never boring. It's never boring to watch. How did your 15 minute you know, podcast go? Yeah, we almost did it, man. You're so great. We, we aim for 15 and we only went over by 50 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I told you, I don't trust myself to speak for only 15 minutes. It's about quality, not quantity. So I don't, I don't care about the length. I think it, it was a good one. I think it was an interesting topic that Not enough people discuss in detail like this. So I'm glad you mm -hmm. took the time. Thank you very much. No worries. No, great. Thanks for inviting me. I'm always glad to be back. Awesome. Bye-bye until next time. Bye.